Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. We are going to be in Psalm 29 this morning. Psalm 29. A few months back when we were looking at the preaching calendar, we had planned to take this week off from our series looking at the lives of the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha uh, in First and Second Kings. But we're actually going to focus on a significant part of their story. We're going to look at the backdrop to the lives of Elijah and Elisha in Psalm 29. Um, it's in your worship guide. It's also um, in the worship guide, the digital one on our website. You can find it there. During the pandemic, uh, there have been many things that I have missed. Uh, one thing that I've missed is going to live entertainment, to concerts, to movies, to the theater. Jess and I, when we first got married, uh, had a line item in our budget for concert tickets. And a few weeks before everything started shutting down, our family got to go to New York City, and we went and saw The, the Lion King on Broadway. And if you've seen it before, you know that it's unbelievable. It seems like everything in the theater is moving and is part of the show. Have you ever been to a play at a community theater, Broadway, or the West End, and during the intermission, you could see the stagehands setting up the backdrop. You see parts of the stage moving around, setting up for the second act of the play. There isn't much space on those stages, so each piece of the background is significant. Each part is vital to tell the story. Well, consider this sermon an intermission in the story of Elijah and Elisha. During this intermission, we will take a closer look at the backdrop of the stories that we have heard. And to help us look at the backdrop is a king in Israel, not Ahab that we've been reading about, a different king. One who lived 100 years before Elijah and Elisha, and that's King David. And so let's look at his poem of praise, Psalm number 29. And let us listen carefully, for this is God's word. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the gods. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the oaks to whirl and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people and may the Lord bless his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that by your spirit you would draw near to us and that you would help us to draw near to you. Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds to hear your truth and give us the strength to respond with all that we are to all that you are. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. There's an inherent drive in every human person to worship. And by worship, I'm meaning this innate drive to offer gratitude, to fear, and to hope. For thousands of years, cultures and traditions have arisen and tried to um, to pursue and live out these drives to fear, gratitude, and hope. The Bible is full of references of how cultures have tried to express these drives to worship. And over the past few weeks, we have looked at the life of Elijah in the Old Testament books of First and Second Kings. And in Second Kings alone, there are over 60 references to various pagan gods and goddesses. The most famous is Baal, which we most commonly say uh, pronounces Baal. In the regions of Canaan, Baal was the most popular pagan deity. And you'll recall, recall from a few weeks ago, the time when the prophet Elijah took on Baal's prophets. The mythology said that Baal was the son of the pagan god El, and Baal was known as the god of the storm, the god of thunder and lightning. Many cultures had gods and goddesses who were over storms, who oversaw rain and drought, windstorms and lightning. If you've ever been caught in a terrible storm, a tornado or a hurricane, you know the deep fear and the terrible awe that weather can solicit. And then there's the lack of rain. Drought and subsequent famine can be just as arresting and terrifying. In ancient Mesopotamia, the part of the world where many of the Bible stories occur, they regularly experienced terrible droughts, sometimes for months, even years, without rain. That is how the belief in these weather gods came about, the showdown between the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Yahweh happened during one of those droughts. The people were beholden to these unseen forces of rain and sun. Too little rain and the people would starve. Too much rain and they would drown. Someone had to be in charge of these forces. The gods over the weather must be kept happy, and that's how these pagan rituals began. In First and Second Kings, there are 17 different pagan gods and goddesses who are explicitly referenced. There was a Drimelech, the sun god, because not only must the rain be just right, the sun had to shine just enough. Not too hot, or the crops would die. Not too little, or it would not grow. So they named the god of the sun Adrimelech. Then there was Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth watched over fertility for both humans and livestock. But of course, not everyone could agree. Not every group, tribe, or culture could agree which god was over what. So there were extra gods who might be battling it out together. So another sun god, Rimon, might require some more sacrifices too. And at the same time, not too far off in another part of the ancient world, the Greeks were writing their own stories of Poseidon, the god of the sea, Zeus, 
was in charge of the sky. It was Artemis, not Ashtoreth, who was overseeing the birth of the woodland creatures. In time, as cultures spread and they moved and changed, so would these stories of the gods and the goddesses. Baal becomes Zeus, Artemis becomes Diana, Poseidon becomes Neptune. For thousands of years, humanity has displayed a deep and abiding drive to worship, to fear, to gratitude, to hope. This drive is so strong that it must be expressed even if the culture has to look to the skies and make up a deity. And still other cultures would turn inward look to themselves as the deity, themselves as the object of worship. King David, who was brought from the fields as a shepherd to the throne of Israel, was familiar with these old stories, stories of pagan gods and goddesses. And this is why he begins Psalm 29, a poem of worship, in a very unique way. He actually starts off by speaking to these false gods and goddesses. He starts off by addressing the sons of the gods. There are a couple different ways that this has been translated and understood over the centuries, but the Hebrew word-for-word translation is sons of the gods. Your Bible might say heavenly beings, or it might say mighty ones. I interpret this phrase to be a reference to all the supposed heavenly deities that the surrounding culture would have worshipped, all those false gods and goddesses. The phrase was often used to describe this group of pagan deities that people worshipped instead of Yahweh. And I think in this poem of praise, David is calling out all these supposed gods and goddesses, and he's calling them to ascribe to the one true God, Yahweh, The glory due only to his name. David is commanding all of heaven to bow down before Yahweh, the only true God. You'll notice in your Bibles and in your worship guides of the passage, the word Lord with all capital letters. That's distinct from the other times where you see it, capital L and the rest lowercase. Capital L-O-R-D represents the Hebrew name Yahweh that would have been written with the letters Y-H-W-H. David is being very precise here in, throughout this poem. He is talking about the one true God of, of Israel, Yahweh. And everything and everyone in all of creation, even the made-up deities are being called to ascribe glory to God alone. And there are two words that are very important for us to understand here, ascribe and glory. So what does it mean to ascribe? Often the English translation is the word give, but that's not always helpful. It's not always helpful because we aren't giving something to God that he would otherwise lack. It's not that we have glory, and if we don't give it to him, he will be missing glory. Perhaps a better way to understand it is to ascribe means to recognize and acknowledge. To recognize and acknowledge God's glory. And glory can be summarized as the full weight of God's greatness. It's the sum of his character and his power. King David is saying, in all of creation, all of heaven and earth, everyone must give supreme and ultimate recognition to God's greatness. 
David calls everyone, especially in this psalm, these made-up gods and goddesses to bow down before Yahweh and worship him, to fear him, to give gratitude and thanks to him, to put your hope in him. Give this ultimate worship in the majestic splendor of God's holiness. Imagine the people of Israel singing this psalm. Imagine them singing it as they traveled to worship Yahweh in Jerusalem, and along the way they would sing it, and the townspeople hearing from a distance coming closer in, they're singing songs to these false gods to bow down, these false gods that these other people would have been worshiping. And the people of Israel are saying to all these false gods, bow down before the glory of the one true God. David is saying that Yahweh is not like any other gods or goddesses. Yahweh is not like the statues and the idols crafted by hands. Yahweh is not like Zeus or Baal. All of creation must bow before Yahweh the Lord. Fear him alone. Be thankful to him alone. Hope in him alone. He's saying there is no other God besides Yahweh, which, as you'll remember, is the central message of Elijah, the prophet. The psalm continues. David moves our attention from the heights of the heavenlies to the earth. And he begins to repeat a phrase over and over again. And it's this, the voice of the Lord. Seven times David will start a stanza with the words, the voice of the Lord. The voice of Yahweh. It signifies the power and the authority of the Lord. Think back to another poem at the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, the creation poem. In that poem, all that is seen and unseen comes into being because of the voice of the Lord. He speaks and it comes into existence. The voice of God is the expression of his ultimate and supreme power. And that is what merits our ultimate and supreme worship. Look at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. David is declaring that it is Yahweh's voice that thunders over the water. It's not Baal or Poseidon, those pagan gods of the storm and the sea. It is Yahweh. And it is his voice alone that thunders over the water, the power of God displayed. David continues, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The cedar trees in the region were known for their majesty. They were symbols of immovable strength. Have you ever stood among the giant redwoods in California? That's what David is describing. These massive trees of great strength. David says they tremble and break apart at the voice of Yahweh. The great mountains of Lebanon and Syrian skip and dance. They shake like a young calf at the voice of Yahweh. Verse 6, if you're following along in the King James Version, has one of my favorite translations. It reads, the Lord makes Syrian like a unicorn. 
If you're looking for more unicorn verses in the Bible, uh, check out Numbers 23:22, which reads in the King James, God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. That's why I have a doctorate, folks, to know the unicorn verses. Moving on. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. David has moved our attention from the far north of Lebanon all the way down to the south of Kadesh. He's demonstrating the expanse of the Lord's power, shaking the wilderness, flames of fire, where different gods and goddesses throughout that land were known for one power. They they were the God over the flame. They were the God uh, over the lightning, God over the waters. David is saying he is God over all of it. Yahweh alone, his voice covers it all. The voice of the Lord makes the oaks whirl. Some of your translations might say, the deer give birth. If you want to talk about how you can get those two different translations from the Hebrew, the nerds can meet back here afterwards. We can talk about it. It has to do with vowels, uh, but we can talk about it later. But the voice of the Lord makes the oaks whirl and strips the forests bare, and in his temple all cry glory. It is the Lord who brings the wind, strips the forest bare. Not these false gods and goddesses. It is the one true God. David closes his song of praise, saying the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The first reference to flood since Noah in the Old Testament. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The temporary king, David, declares that Yahweh is sitting enthroned as king forever. The Lord is not going anywhere. He will never lose his throne and his power will never diminish. So, that sounds great, you say. This is interesting. It's like a classics 101 class, but you might be saying to yourself, I don't worship pagan gods. Now, what difference does this make for me today sitting in a parking deck? Well, that's probably true. You probably don't worship Zeus or Athena or Diana, but I want to ask you honestly and for you to answer honestly in your own hearts and minds. Who gets your worship? Who receives your fear, your gratitude, your hope? It might not be the gods and goddesses of the ancient world, but does the Lord God receive your true worship? The backdrop to Elijah and Elijah was mass confusion. People were in chaos. Is that familiar to anyone? Any confusion this week? Any chaos this week in our world? Our country, your classrooms or offices, workplaces, homes, friendships, family, any chaos or confusion there? The people 
in Elijah and Elisha's time where people in the chaos of misplaced fear, misplaced gratitude, misplaced hope, it is misdirected worship. So what about us? Who gets your fear? What sets you trembling? What brings you low? Your failures? Your reputation? Your bank account? What causes you to wake up in the middle of the night and not get back to peaceful rest? What sends you spiraling to be short with your friends or family or to raise your voice with a person you love? What do you really fear? Because what you fear tells what really has power in your life. Who receives your gratitude? Where does your thankfulness go? Often, when we don't direct our gratitude outward, it ends up going inward to ourselves. And we are the reason that things are going well in our life. It's our own hard work that deserves the credit. But here's a helpful test. Do you regularly feel unappreciated? Do you note every time someone doesn't say thank you? Does that take up a big part of your thinking? then I would encourage you to check your gratitude to the Lord. Because it is nearly impossible to express gratitude to the Lord when we are consumed by the ingratitude of others or we are focused on gratitude toward ourselves. So where do you put your hope? Because either we hope or we give in to hopelessness. Where is your hope? When you feel the ache over how things are now and you long for change, what do you believe can and will make things change? Is it your skill, your plans, the election, the economy, the culture? What's ever going to bring justice that we need? What will bring mercy? What will bring peace? King David ends Psalm 29 saying that the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. But how? Through the king that is on his throne forever. Through the voice of the Lord that speaks his peace and strength over his beloved. Yahweh brings his holy peace, his shalom to his people. And we need that strength you need that strength. And we need that peace. You need that peace. And it comes from Christ, the eternal King. The voice of the Lord is Christ himself. And the King is Christ who is seated on the eternal throne. We read in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, it begins with these words, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Elijah and Elisha. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. It is Jesus who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He took his throne. Our promise, David reminds us in Psalm 29, is that 
this eternal king blesses his people with strength and peace. That is how we endure and persevere through the chaos of life, through the strength and peace of our King Jesus. That is our hope, our eternal hope, and we need that hope. Because just like the backdrop for Elijah and Elisha, we too live in a chaos of misdirected worship. We are tempted and pulled to lives that worship the wrong things. But what all the prophets like Elijah and Elisha were pointing to, the one God who is due our wholehearted worship, who deserves our eternal hope, our supreme gratitude, our holy fear, those prophets were pointing to Jesus. The drive in all of us to offer our gratitude, our fear, our hope, the drive that dreamed up hundreds of gods and goddesses throughout the centuries, that drive has a place where worship is truly due. And in all of this, the call to each one of us today is to ascribe, to recognize and acknowledge the glory, the greatness and graciousness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, by your Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts and minds that we would behold the glory of Jesus, that we would look upon the radiance of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, our King. With a holy fear, an earnest gratitude, and an eternal hope, may we acknowledge and recognize that, Jesus, right now you are upholding the universe by the word of your power. You're holding us together even when we feel like we're falling apart. Lord, by your Spirit, would you give us a confidence, a confidence in your strength and the peace found in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.